every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Marie Gasset, Vice President of Growth at Confluent, the enterprise event streaming platform provider that garnered a $4.5 billion valuation last year. Prior to Confluent, Marie served as Senior Director and General Manager of the Online Sales Business Unit at Box, and she holds an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. On this episode, Marie discusses the heavily data-driven nature of her role, the product-led growth model that she embraces to maximize revenue and ROI, and the leadership philosophies she uses to trust and empower her teams. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Marie Gasset, Vice President of Growth at Confluent, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of Demand Gen Visionaries and CEO of Caspian Studios. And I am joined by special guest, Marie. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Thanks, as always, to Qualified.com, our amazing sponsor. Marie, we're going to talk a lot of demand gen and the amazing stuff that's going on at Confluent. But first, how did you get started in demand gen? My first job, actually, out of undergrad was in marketing at Cisco Systems. I was working on SMB marketing, doing a bunch of tactical things like product launches, web localization, just really got my hands dirty on a lot of things. I will note that I think I drove my first boss crazy, though I was constantly asking him, like, why are we doing this? What's the impact? Like, why would we launch this way? Why would we spend money this way? And uh, I just think back at, like, how annoyed he must have been. And uh, unfortunately, I think that's kind of, you know, followed me throughout, just always asking the why. And uh, yeah, it's been fun. I'm sure that there are probably some really annoying entry-level employees that ask that sort of stuff that don't end up being successful in some way. But I feel the same way where it's like the person who comes in at, at an early age and is asking like a million questions, like, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Like, those are probably the people that are going to be top performers. I don't know if you've seen that, if you see a little bit of yourself and some of the people on your team or, or teams of past. Oh, totally. I think I, I gravitate towards those folks because I, I kind of see myself, my younger self in them. And yeah, it can be annoying, but uh, I think knowing that I was, and maybe it still am that person, uh, helps me have a little bit of empathy for them. So for listeners who don't know, tell us a little bit about Confluent. Yeah. So Confluent is a little bit complex to explain. We're uh, a company based on an open source technology called Kafka from the Apache Foundation. And so we're creating a, a new category of computing, we like to say, event streaming. So it's helped companies manage all their data across their entire business. Um, super relevant nowadays, you know, a couple examples, like if you're getting recommendations from Netflix, or if you're, you know, picking up groceries curbside from Walmart, like that is powered by Confluent. So we give customers instant access to massive amounts of uh, data, 
flowing through their entire business in real time and the idea is that they can really be successful in today's digital world. Okay, so let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? The trust tree is where you can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. So in your role, VP at Growth at Confluent, what is your demand gen strategy? I would say my strategy, or at least what I gravitate towards is, you know, you would call the inbound go-to-market model, really like capturing demand, converting it, accelerating it. I'm really focused on the numbers, maybe maybe to a fault, uh, like the mechanics, the engine. And then I rely on on my counterparts for anything like content messaging related, because I'm so kind of obsessed with the numbers and the mechanics of it all. I'm really into the product-led growth model, which is kind of a sexy term. Nowadays, it can mean a bunch of different things, but... It is, but it's great. I know, I love, I yeah, PLG. Yeah, so that's kind of my, at least what I, what I really care about, gravitate towards. To me, like getting folks, prospects into the product early, getting value from the product, using it, onboarding, like that, there's nothing more like authentic than that. And so that's what I get really excited about. And so like some of my favorite tactics, I would say, are, you know, website optimization, SEO, getting organic traffic, and again, like getting folks into the product. So that's what I gravitate towards. I would say it makes me different than a lot of demand gen folks. I'm not even sure I would say I identify as a demand gen person, perhaps controversial given the name of this podcast. But yeah, certainly anything around the quant, the quantitative and getting folks in product is, is what I'm, I'm really into. Yeah, I mean, we hear that a lot. I mean, the the I think growth and demand gen are becoming synonymous in in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, it's I mean, it's the blending of worlds. I mean, it's kind of how marketing has been going for for the past five years. Is what is growth versus demand versus versus all that stuff. So I think that that it makes sense. So then, how do you? And we'll get into all of those tactics that you just mentioned and strategies in in our next segment here. Um, but so, what's your org structure look like? How do you how do you organize those teams? Yeah, so the org structure I have right now, I have kind of three teams. I have one um, we call it the digital growth team, and they're really focused on you know paid acquisition, web optimization, SEO, email nurture, things like that. Kind of like the engine as I might call it, or the train tracks. Then I have a life cycle team and they're focused really on kind of the programs that we put along those train tracks and really focused on like the holistic prospect journey. And that team is especially focused, I mean, everyone, but on our product-led growth side, like how are we getting folks into the product, adopting the product, et cetera. And then I have the SDR org, the sales development org, which can sit in marketing or in sales depending on on companies. But um, I'm fortunate to have that org in my purview. And so we're really kind of converting the momentum, you know, that marketing is driving into pipeline and ultimately revenue. I love that analogy, the train tracks, the train, get everybody on board. Um, so then how do you go to market? What's the, um, persona that, that you all are trying to target? Great question. And I think particularly because it's a little bit of a nuanced answer, we target many different personas at Confluent. So we have you know, kind of the practitioners, as we call them, developers, architects, maybe operators who are actually going to use the product and like be intimately involved in actually leveraging Confluent and the underlying open source technology, which is Kafka. 
And then we also have the kind of like technical executive persona, which are the folks who are going to be, you know, the economic buyer or the decision makers. My team from a growth perspective is really a little bit more focused on those practitioner personas, especially because we're trying to get folks into the product and leveraging what we call Confluent Cloud. So we're mainly focused on these practitioner personas, getting them interested in Confluent, getting them converted, and ideally getting them into the product using the product. And so what types of companies are your size and what type of activities and industries? So everyone. I think that's maybe an unsatisfying answer. But uh, because we're so horizontal in terms of the businesses that we can impact, like data is pretty much everywhere. We, we pretty much can impact almost any company in the world. And so we have some segmentations, you know, from the sales side or uh, marketing content uh, side, you know, by use cases, by verticals, et cetera. But ultimately, we're really kind of targeting everyone. And so for me, this is why I, I gravitate a little bit more towards, you know, this kind of inbound momentum and kind of these growthy tactics. They're a little bit more kind of general and broad, but really trying to get these people in, interested, engaged, and then, you know, converting them downstream. Yeah. And I'm curious because Kafka is not something potentially that everybody knows about. How much education do you have to do about what Kafka is versus those developers or those people who they're like, oh, of course I know what this is. You know, like what is what is the education around the open source platform? Yeah, great question. I try to view this as like concentric circles. So Kafka from like maybe in my in my shoes as a VP of growth, like Kafka, people who are using know of at least Kafka is my addressable market. So, you know, I think of spending most of our time with folks who do know what Kafka is, who have some experience with the underlying technology. But that doesn't mean that as a company, Confluent, we're not really focusing on expanding kind of that circle or that addressable market of Kafka users. And so we do a lot to kind of be the trusted source for anything Kafka related. So we have, you know, folks within our company who are really focused on growing that addressable market of Kafka users. We put a lot of energy into that. And then I would say in my position, I'm a little bit more focused into like of the people who are using Kafka, how do we get them to, to basically buy Confluent? Yeah. And so what does that motion look like? Is it something that the developer, they're already using Kafka, they already know about it. They find out about Confluent and then they go, you know, tell their tell their boss like, hey, we should we should buy this. Like, do they? I know you can get started for free on the on the platform. So, just curious how that works. Yeah, I think you know historically, or a couple years ago, the motion you described is what was was happening. So, folks were using Kafka, the underlying technology, feeling like, okay, I think we need some help here. Like talking to folks who who hold the purse strings and ultimately starting to to have a discussion on purchasing Confluent, but more and more because of our cloud product, because of product led growth, what we're seeing is um, we have folks who even folks who are new to Kafka, like using our Confluent cloud product to get up and running to actually learn about Kafka even more intimately, and then using kind of that first engagement from a product standpoint with these lower level personas as an entry point into a more meaningful deal cycle. So that dynamic is shifting a little bit, which, which I love. I love the bottoms up kind of strategy. And so seeing that come to fruition through a product is really exciting. Yeah, that is cool. I mean, and then where does sales play into that kind of bottom up motion? Is there is there a handoff? Is there some some time where it goes into like more of an enterprise level relationship or what does that look like? 
Yeah, I think we're we're trying to, you know, we're shifting a lot of the sales perspective to really see the value in the bottoms up piece. So there's certainly like so much importance and so much emphasis on getting execs engaged, champions engaged, decision makers engaged. But especially with our, our cloud product, we're trying to really show like, hey, this is a great starting point for a more meaningful deal cycle. And so on the marketing side, on the SDR side, you know, we really focus on acquiring folks into the product, getting them onboarded, getting them active. Um, and then linking that up and handing that off to the sales team to start looking into use cases and thinking about how, you know, consumption patterns aren't going to work, et cetera. So really trying to view this as like, you know, kind of a pipeline mechanism. Like if I do my job well, I have a bunch of, you know, small teams, you know, active in the product, not spending a ton of money, but, you know, getting value from the product. And then we focus on handing that off to sales in a thoughtful way where they can add value, where they can think about, you know, having a longer term relationship with, with Confluent. And then who are the people who are signing the dotted line on this? Um, is it a C-level executive buyer at the end of the day? Totally depends. Totally depends. Given we have a pretty good self-serve motion, you know, we have plenty of folks who don't need that buy-in. Not at all. Uh, you can use a credit card. But ultimately, at some point, if we're you know, going to close uh, you know, seven-figure deals, like certainly we'll have uh, executives be much more involved there. Okay, let's get into our next segment, The Playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where we open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. Ooh. What are three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? I love this question, especially I, I saw the compilation y'all did. It was just it was just awesome. Thank you. I know. It's great. I mean, you go back and read through that. I mean, it's funny because I do the, obviously all the interviews and I go back through and as we're like building our marketing plan, I'm like, man, oh, like I forgot about that one. It's just, there's so many good stuff. Yeah. If our listeners haven't checked it out, we'll link it up in the show notes, uncuttable budget items. Awesome. So I put my three together. So my first one, um, maybe not a surprise, measurement and data, analytics, tracking the underlying systems thoughtful data pending. I know it's not sexy, it's not glamorous, but it's so important in terms of understanding what's actually driving impact about understanding our prospects, our customers. So that's, you know, far and away my number one. My number two, I put SEO and web optimization. Just, you know, generally that organic channel, it's so high intent, such quality there. So like whatever you can do to just beef up your SEO, get that organic traffic, and then make the web experience really, really thoughtful. And finally, you know, not a surprise either, some um, SEM and paid social. I have an amazing team here at Confluent managing that stuff. And we've just had some really great outcomes. And so I've gotten increasingly excited about those budget items. So let's unpack those. The first one, data. Are you, I mean, are you the type of marketer as a VP of growth that is just constantly looking at systems and processes and things to to improve that data stack to get more information out of it because it seems like you know there's endless opportunities to invest in in data but it's obviously the the most important thing that marketers have right now yeah candidly i will say i don't stay super close to like the actual vendors and the folks that we use on data pending or on you know some of the data infrastructure the way I approach this is really to build a super strong partnership with our uh, analytics folks, or we call them data scientists here at Confluent, and then do everything in my power to unblock them, to you know give them budget, to help them hire, 
to give them a headcount. So that's kind of my approach. Um, that's worked well. Like I have, you know, we just started using segment. The sales team at segment, you know, kept asking me to get on calls and trying to like educate me on the product and like the value it would bring. And ultimately I was like, I don't care. I'm just going to sign the check for whatever my team says <laughs> yeah, is good. Totally. And so that's kind of my mentality, like, you know, hire great people that you trust. And then if they say they need something, then my job is to kind of open the purse strings and, uh, and advocate. That's so great. I love that. Do you think a lot of marketers have a relationship with the data science team? I mean, I think that's a little bit of a leading question, which is no. Like, I think a lot of marketers maybe aren't as close to their data scientists or their analytics partners. For me, it's uh, like that's what, you know, the quantitative part of marketing is what my job is. And so we certainly can't do that without our data science counterparts. The other thing I'll say is just a level of kind of analytics proficiency for everyone on my team. That's another way to partner really well. Is just making sure we hire folks who, you know, can self-serve a lot of their data, who can do high-level analyses, who value our data scientists, who love partnering with them. That's a big part of how we structure our team. Yeah, and so what are what, like what are some of the insights or the takeaways that you'd get from something like that? Like, are you going to them with a problem and saying like, "Hey, we keep seeing X," or this is a bunch of information about people coming to the website that we need to get some analysis on or what, what types of stuff are you throwing over the wall to the, uh, to the data teams? That's a really good question because the nuance is I actually think all the examples you gave just now, like that I would expect my team folks sitting in my org to be able to do to, to a large extent, the stuff that we, obviously it's a partnership and the data scientists often have, you know, we'll do these kind of high level analyses, like what is converting really well, which channels or which tactics, like totally. But I do ideally have a dynamic where folks on the team have access to this data, can do a little slicing and dicing themselves and come away with those high level insights of like, oh yeah, the architect persona converts way better than the developer persona. Like, what are we going to do about that? I view our partnership with the data science team a lot in terms of like the infrastructure and uh, you know the systems and the tables we're building and, and things like that. So for example, you know we want to make sure that we have the persona information in all these systems and that we're using that to score our leads. That's something we would partner with data science on really closely. But in terms of you know some of the examples you gave, like hey, what piece of content is performing best on our paid channels, things like that, that I expect to come from from my team directly. Yeah, that's great. Any other stuff on, on, on data specifically that you've seen that's worked really well? I actually really think we're getting a lot of value out of Segment. Any of these tools that really help, uh, and maybe I should be plugging. <laughs> oh, no, we have them coming up on the show. Oh, Katrina awesome. from Segment's going to be, she's coming up uh, uh, in the not too distant future. So, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of stuff, that piping, again, like not always the sexiest thing. But, you know, being able to have that data, that information in all our various systems, being able to segment audiences, et cetera, super powerful stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's just one of those things you just, you look at and there's, there's endless opportunities. I mean, just like the way that I think like segmentation, if you just thinking about it kind of like holistically, as we've kind of done in the past, where it's like, okay, you can, you know, segment your, your audience by whatever, whatever you want to you want to say by industry, by vertical, by this or that. I just think there's so many different ways to think about your customers and prospects that we haven't even kind of like, you know, scratched the surface on, especially in B2B, you know, talking about here. Like, you know, for example, we, we, we use the software um, 
that pulls information on, on people. And it's all, uh, or that does like data enrichment. And it's all useless information. I mean, it's not useless. It could be very valuable. But it's like, I don't necessarily care if somebody has median household income or, you know, all that stuff. And you're like, you just gave me 50 data points and none of these are relevant to, you know, what I'm looking at from a B2B perspective. I think there's a lot of tools that were built for B2C. And so that stuff, you know, segmentation is, is going to be really important in the future. Totally. Um, I completely agree with you, which is, you know, why, especially I had in my notes, like thoughtful data appending is really valuable. Like there's a bunch of data appending that we folks pay for that actually drives very little value. But I do think the tide is starting to shift. Like I'm seeing some of these tools that are a little bit more B2B friendly. And so that started, I feel like that's starting to get a little bit better, but I guess time will tell. When you say data pending, what's like, can you share that for our listeners? Yeah. So data appending is and there's a few levels of it. So for example, at the website level, you can have someone who visits you. They may not even give you any information, but a data appending tool, I think Kickfire does this, for example, is will tell you like information about that visitor. So then perhaps you can, you know, personalize their web experience in one way or another. And then as you get kind of lower in the funnel, maybe with email address, you'll have, you know, maybe someone like Clearbit provide additional information on this person. Maybe they didn't tell you where they work or they didn't tell you you know, where they are geographically. And so these tools kind of along the way will add information so that you know more about your prospects, know more about your customers, then you can segment them or personalize for them in a, in a meaningful way. A lot of power in this. I don't think I've been anywhere where folks uh, will be fully kind of exploited the power of, of all this information we have about our prospects. Couldn't agree more. Which kind of brings us to our, to our next point here, which is SEO and uh, and website optimization. We talk about it all the time, like your website's your your storefront, it's your most important asset. How do you view SEO? How much uh, how much are you working on content? And uh, and then we'll get into the the actual optimization once they once they show up after that. Yeah, I mean, I think SEO is like some of the lowest hanging fruit. I know sometimes it sounds really tactical, and sometimes I struggle. For example, with counterparts maybe in sales to say like this is really important but you know scoring ranking highly on google like that can have a tremendous impact on your business and so for us you know obviously a mix of technical seo um so just you know little optimizations we make on on kind of the back end as well as just creating a bunch of content is how we get as much of that organic high quality traffic to our website i will say at confluent we're really lucky you know, because we we really work to be the kind of number one thought leader for all things Kafka, we do have a lot of incredible folks internally who create blog posts and web pages. So we have an incredible kind of inventory of content and incredible writers internally that we can leverage for a lot of our SEO efforts. And on the web optimization side, if I can kind of jump into that, I think I actually enjoy this maybe selfishly because it's like a puzzle. You know, you have all this traffic and then you have an outcome, you know, whether that's leads or conversions or signups or whatever you want it to be. And you get to experiment or try or, you know, make incremental changes your way into like growing your your end goal. So to me, it's just like it's like such a fun tactic, but also like crazy impactful. Um, you can make changes to your CTA or to like the look and feel of a page and have like meaningful downstream impact to your business, not just in B2C, like very much in B2B as well. So I find that to be such a impactful, but also like satisfying tactic. Like you can do an A-B test and meaningfully change the direction of your company. That's so insane and should be just like fully exploited. 
Yeah. Do you, are there certain metrics that you look at that are like, hey, someone's checked out eight different pages, and that's the trigger to once they've once they've looked at you know these eight things, we know that we need to get them closer to X. Like, how are you looking at that from a data standpoint versus just kind of like the anecdotal things of like you know, hey, if they if they download the you know, whatever the Kafka definitive guide, then we know that, you know, X X should happen. How do you look at those journeys? Yeah, we work with our data science team to kind of identify these little nuggets without kind of going too much. I do have uh, kind of uh, the the PR team who has uh, uh, told me to stay not too much, but. Oh yeah. Don't, don't spill all the secrets. We are in the trust tree still uh, technically, but uh, don't, don't share all the secrets here. I'll, I'll, I'll cite kind of a couple nuggets that we've found that are really interesting. So for example, we've, we, we basically run correlations in, or try to find correlations between certain web behaviors and how that impacts like conversion to, you know, a, a more downstream metric, whether that's lead creation or even kind of becoming pipeline. And we've found a couple interesting nuggets like folks who visit our docs pages, which is tends to be like a very developer oriented, very tactical part of our website or uh, or folks who have also visited our blog, which also is ungated and just really kind of thought leadership type content, that if folks have done, you know, a number of activities on kind of our regular website marketing area and also visited one of these two areas that are more kind of developer focused and uh, that we find that there's higher conversion there. So uh, I can't say we actually actioned that in a very thoughtful way yet, but all the time we find these kind of interesting correlations that then we try to try to include in, in the website journey. Yeah, I mean, it almost it makes you think too as as websites get more and more dynamic and, and smarter that it's like, and I'm glad that you mentioned that it's ungated because I, I think it's like we just I think so often it's like oh well if, if they're on this page then we need to be pushing them to demo or something like that we need to like and it's like just let it happen right like let them cruise around and do their thing for a little while. We don't need to have, you know, calls, calls to demo like every five seconds. Um, and obviously, you know, this, our, our sponsor is qualified and we talk about conversational marketing, you know, all the time, but it's like, that's, that's where those tools come in where it's like, if they want to have a conversation, they can just do it. We, we just don't need to like, you know, slam them with a million, uh, uh, with a million things over their head every time they try to do anything on the website. Cause it just makes them not want to stay or, or come back. I don't know if, if you've seen that at all. Yeah, I think the other thing I would say is we often, you know, don't know exactly what someone might want to do. Um, we can make our best guess, and I think we have to make um, options available. But I do think that we're kind of getting to a new, I hope, marketing mentality where it's it's a little getting a little less salesy and a little bit more like, hey, we're here to help. Like, let us know if you need help, like getting onboarded or learning more about this product or learning more about this part of the industry, and that that feels a little bit more wholesome and a little bit you know better experience for our prospects. So I feel like that the the marketing industry is moving in that direction. I certainly hope that that it stays that way, stays in, in that direction. So what is your most cuttable budget item? What's the item where uh, uh, it's something that you've you've worked in, maybe you tried in the past and just isn't wasn't quite working? I'm gonna be a hater here, so just get ready. And I will like say I'm just biased. I think I like a lot of the newer, growthier marketing tactics. And so I'm just going to trash the traditional stuff. So paid content syndication, I feel allergic to. We've heard that. We've heard that multiple, multiple times. Yeah. Oh, good. 
Okay. Yeah. Do not like that stuff. Doesn't feel genuine. Mm -mm, haven't seen high ROI there. Um, these are obvious like list buys, like, come on, no more. I don't like trade shows. Call me crazy. Don't like them. Haven't found high uh, ROI there at all. I think a lot of that is just, you don't have a ton of insight on who these folks are. And there's so much that can draw someone to a trade show that like the, just, it's hard to get a sense of the intent. And the last one is kind of obvious is direct mail. <laughs> just, yeah, I'm, I'm done with that. Yeah. I mean, I think that those are, uh, those are all things that, that we hear pretty often. I think the direct mail pieces, you hear a lot of people on both sides of the aisle on this, where it's like, they just changed how they do direct mail. And then now they can do that a lot better. I've seen direct mail work. We actually, there's a vendor, I forgot their name that we've worked, we've sometimes used with SDR, but it's so personalized, you know, very, very kind of like high touch personalized outreach. And that can have a huge impact. I like that, but just in terms of like kind of a broad direct mail program, I, uh, I do not, I'm not into it. Yeah. That's a great point, right? It's, it kind of speaks to the, uh, the nuance of marketing, right? It's like, it's like with anything where you're like sending the same thing to a million people is inferior most of the time than sending personalized things to a million people. So then why do we, why do we do, why do we do the thing, the one size fits all? We talked about segmentation earlier and like, that's, you know, in order to do personalization, first you must segment them accordingly. And I think that that's part of the problem. I have a fun, quick direct mail story. This person clearly did some internet research on me. Uh, I forget who the vendor was. So I got in the mail, I, I ride horses, just a hobby of mine. I really like it. And I, the, the, I assume was an SDR from this vendor sent me a riding crop in the mail as you can imagine, as I opened that at work and ultimately had this like writing crop sitting on my desk uh, at work in our open space, people were like, what is up with Marie? Like, why does she have this weird writing crop on her desk? Like, what's her what's going on at night over there? So that was uh, it certainly got my attention, but I, I was a little creeped out. This is for the marketers who don't make their goals. Uh <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if you ever ended up using it, but at least it's thoughtful. At least it's memorable. It is. It was very memorable. Yeah. I don't think I used it. No. Do you have a, uh, a favorite campaign that you've done? Yeah. I have two thoughts on this. I'll answer in the traditional sense and then in kind of the growthy sense. So in the traditional sense, one thing we've had a lot of good outcomes with recently is LinkedIn ads. I'm really into LinkedIn and their targeting from a B2B standpoint, especially some of the conversations you and I just had on personas for, for Confluent, like the ability to target on LinkedIn is just fantastic. And we've also just had a, a wonderful experience working with them. So, you know, we had great targeting, great content and really strong ROI there. So that's been one of my favorites recently. In kind of the growth, the non-traditional sense, maybe getting on my soapbox here, I just can't tell you how much revenue you can kind of shift in, in a good way, how much revenue you can get from A-B testing a new, better pricing page. Mm. Yeah, I've done this in, at two, in two jobs now, but you know, and, and you obviously have to have a better design, a better experience, better content. Like the, the test has to be something that's a, a materially better uh, experience, but the kind of downstream impact that can have is insane. You know, it's, it's counterintuitive. You're like, okay, if I change my pricing page, like it's pretty much the same information, maybe featured a different way, messaged a different way. Why would that have a meaningful impact? But I've seen it twice now. And so 
uh, it's worth kind of putting a bunch of time and effort into into a new pricing page can have very meaningful impact. Well, yours is slick. I should say the Confluent. Everyone should should go to should go to Confluent.io and check it out because you have your the kind of standard SaaS, you know, basic standard dedicated kind of plan. But then you have an interactive version at the bottom where you can actually get your estimates there by selecting you know provider or AWS or or whatever region usage estimate. And that's I mean that's next level stuff. So kudos. Thank you. And I think just, you know, for the traditional, I was at Box previously and we had a, a little bit more of a traditional model, like different plans and you purchase licenses, but same deal. Um, just in terms of investing in, in the look and feel, the messaging, the experience on that page just, you know, can be very, very meaningful and often overlooked. Yeah. And it just takes them, you know, I mean, how many objections do you think that that like answers for the person, right? So much. Yeah. It, it reduces friction um, without before anyone even kind of enters your product. And so kind of reducing the opacity, you know, reducing those questions and that confusion up front just has a lot of downstream impacts. Okay, let's get to our next segment. The dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting The dust up is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, a competitor, or just anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust up in your career? Well, first of all, I'll say I've had many dust ups. Um, I don't really have much of a filter, so that certainly gets me into plenty of healthy tensions, you might say. And I think I'm I'm fairly kind of outspoken. So again, that can lead lead to to some interesting conversations. You know, one I reflect on that makes me laugh now, but certainly didn't make me laugh back then. Um, at a previous company, I was trying to get promoted. Uh, and I was also really into, you know, the concept of feedback. It's been very kind of talked about lately, like being candid at work, bring your whole self, like, you know, the radical candor, you know. Yeah, radical candor, right. And I was totally, really into yeah. that. I like, you know, the idea of that. And uh I've been having kind of a couple like tense conversations with our head of sales, who's obviously like a thousand levels more senior than, than me at the time. And uh, we were having another one of these kind of like tense conversations. And I remember, you know, just saying like, hey, you know, your tone, some feedback for you. I find your tone to be quite condescending, thinking, you know, that I had all of a sudden come up with this radical candor that we were going to break down all our walls and just like hug it out. And uh, he just, he, I remember he just like, yelled and hung up on me. And um, I was so rattled by that. I was like, so shook up for, you know, weeks. Uh, And now in hindsight, like, I don't know, I have some like tenderness towards younger me, like, oh, that was cute, like thinking she could do that. And ultimately, I have to say, like, it didn't impact our, our relationship. Like we picked up where we left off, we had some productive conversations. But I do view it as like a, a little bit of a milestone in my career in terms of maybe being humbled by that uh, that experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the ultimate thing. Well, first off, do you think he was being condescending in retrospect? Probably a little bit, but also like, is it that productive to highlight that? It certainly wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I think you just, I think a lot of people get to the point in their career where they're, they become in 
expert at one thing and they're definitely smarter at that one thing than than the person who's the senior leader on in sales or on the other side of the on the other side of the aisle. And so you're like, no, I I really do know what I'm talking about. Like I'm not just, you know, whatever. And that person is dealing with like 15 other things and they're just like, yeah, but you don't understand kind of like what I'm dealing with from that perspective. And I think, uh, I'm glad he met, I'm, I hope he met you halfway at least because. Yeah. And I think ultimately like he was right. And that's, I think I was, I was, my forecasting was way off for some revenue number and, uh, like, I think his frustration was merited. Like, yes, sure. Could the tone have been a little bit more pleasant, but ultimately the best way to address that is to get my together and forecast correctly, not to have a long drawn out conversation about why I found his tone to be condescending. Totally. That's good dust up. Okay. Let's get to our final segment, our quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. So quick that it's just like conversational marketing with qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with Qualified.com. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Go to Qualified.com to learn more. Quick hits. Marie, are you ready? I am ready. Number one, what is your favorite horse? Oh, the one I currently ride, Anton. Great guy. Shout out to Anton. Yeah. Where's Where does Anton live? Anton's in Petaluma, so just about 45 minutes north of San Francisco. Oh yeah, love love Petaluma. Mm-hmm. Great place, great uh, great downtown, little small, cute downtown. Totally. If you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? Probably analytics. I mean, that's kind of cheating, but I'll allow it. What about non businessy thingies? A veterinarian. Love animals. It's kind of sciency. I'd be a vet. Do you have a hobby that you've picked up in the last year that you're that you're still doing that you're keeping on? I mean, aside from watching Netflix, uh, I don't know if that's a hobby. I attempted to make Detroit-style pizza during Shelter in Place. So that was fun. But it turns out the experts are better. So I, I kind of stopped that. I know that is the tough part when you spend. Well, you know, to be honest, everybody just uses more butter than you could possibly imagine. That's the, so that's the one thing about cooking at home. You're just like, there's no way to cook at home and make it less... Uh, or make it uh, more unhealthy than than anything that you eat out in uh, in in the real world. I also, I don't want to know. Like I don't need to know that it's a stick of butter. I just, no, I never like, need to know. Yeah. Mm-mm. Do you have anything, whether it's a book or a TV show or something that you've been binging recently? I finally watched West Wing. Oh, finally, and I loved it. Binge the whole thing, and I'm also a big Shit's Creek fan. Watched it three times in a row. It's great. Despite, like, I actually do work. Uh, it sounds like I maybe just watch TV all day <laughs> long, but no, I, I do work. But uh, yeah, obsessed with Shit's Creek and just loved the West Wing. Hey, we're obsessed with downtime. We're all about that here on on Demand Gen Visionaries. We all need a break. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, when you're watching TV shows, it's storytelling, it's still marketing. Oh, there you go. Nice, nice uh, twist on that. Yeah, that's what, you know... Uh, we should, uh, marketers should, uh, you should get all the streaming, all the streaming services. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, the company should pay for it. What is your best piece of advice for a VP of growth or somebody like you that is trying to figure out the demand strategy? I'm going to, um, it's going to be like a presidential debate and I'm not going to answer your question, but say something that I want to say in that area. Surely. Okay. So advice to, to someone in my position 
I'm going to go on kind of the touchy feely people side recognition, just like recognize your team members achievements and hard work. It's so easy, especially in a growth role. Like we're so focused on the numbers, you know, are we going to hit the number? Okay. We hit the number. We didn't that just pausing to recognize team members. That's the biggest piece of advice. And then some, you know, maybe similarly in the kind of qualitative area, just providing folks with clarity and prioritization. I find that, you know, kind of these two themes are, are really important. Everybody who's listening should go check out confluent.io to learn more. Go check out the pricing page if you want some good some good answers. We need to like search in incognito or something so that they don't think you're a uh, process. Unless you want to buy Confluent and then you should absolutely go down uh, and get started for free. But uh, Marie, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Any uh, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? I think I'll, I'll end on kind of the, the similar touchy-feely dynamic, just, you know, in, in shelter in place, we're all home. I think something I've reflected a lot about uh, in terms of hopefully being an effective, you know, demand gen leader is just the people side of things. Like, that's the stuff that keeps me up at night, like how I feel about work, how my employees feel about, you know, their work, are they fulfilled, are they uh, respected? So just, I would say a plug to to keep keep all that stuff in mind. It It may not be, you know, uh, a number or a metric we're tracking. But in the last year, that's certainly what has felt most impactful ultimately to our business metrics is, you know, do people feel good in their jobs? Couldn't agree more. Thanks again for joining and uh, we'll, we'll chat soon. Thanks so much. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.